every day that a governor uses his state of the state speech to announce proposed new regulations to improve the timely diagnosis and treatment of sepsis. But that's precisely what New York Governor Andrew Cuomo did a few weeks ago. His singling out of sepsis for more targeted action is, in part, a reaction to a highly publicized sepsis-related death of a 12-year-old in New York City last year. But the state-level attention to sepsis is also a reflection of how much work has been going on, not just in the U.S., but internationally, to prevent sepsis deaths, and that there are increasingly known steps that can be taken to dramatically reduce sepsis mortality. That's if, and it's a huge and important if, the possibility of sepsis is top of mind, it's quickly investigated, and healthcare providers know the drill and have the capability to move into high gear if necessary. Fortunately, there are a growing number of healthcare organizations that are becoming models of what the process should look like in practice, and we have one such organization with us today on this edition of WIHI. And welcome to WIHI an online audio talk show from the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. We come to you bi-weekly, and we also offer you later listening and convenience via IHI.org and on iTunes. I'm your host and producer, Madge Kaplan. I'm also IHI's Director of Communications. I'm really looking forward to today's discussion, as I imagine you are. I stood in the back of a packed conference room at IHI's National Forum in December, and I caught some wind of the learning and progress that's come about as a result of the ongoing partnership between IHI and North Shore Long Island Jewish Health System to reduce sepsis mortality. So WIHI offers us another opportunity to hear what's been going on. I also want to remind everybody that tweeting is possible during WIHI, either during or after the program. If you can, please include at IHI in your tweets, and that brings others from the IHI community into the conversation. I want to now introduce our guests, and a reminder, as always, always that they have longer bios and all sorts of achievements and accolades, some of which we uh, captured on the WIHI web pages, but you can also find more information about our guests today on their own organization's website. So starting off, I want to introduce Dr. John D'Angelo. He's Vice President of Emergency Medicine at North Shore Long Island Jewish Health System. He works closely with emergency department directors to integrate and standardize clinical care across the health system. Welcome, John. Thank you. All right. This is how this is when everybody signs in. <laughs> okay. Dr. Martin Dorfler, Dorfler, excuse me, is Vice President for Evidence-Based Clinical Practice and Clinical Integration at North Shore LIJ. He is responsible for guiding the adoption of evidence-based practice across all clinical domains and helping to define and facilitate clinical integration of best practices across the health system. Welcome, Marty. Hi, Madge. Good to be here. Terrific. Darlene Parmentier has been a registered nurse for 23 years. She's currently a director of patient care services with oversight of critical care, telemetry, and emergency departments at North Shore Long Island Jewish Health System. It's good to have you with us, Darlene. Thank you. All right, great. Okay. And I promise you'll be able to hear from everybody. Everyone's being very kind of cautious and quiet right now, but their voices will come in loud and clear. Andrea Capsinol is here with me in the studio. She's a vice president at the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. Does an awful lot, but the thing we'll call out here is she's a senior member of IHI's research and development team. Welcome, Andrea. Thanks, Madge. Glad to be here. All right. And Diane Jacobson is a director at IHI who is currently steering the North Shore Long Island Jewish IHI Sepsis Improvement Initiative and also the CDC IHI Antibiotic Stewardship Initiative. Welcome, Diane. Thanks so much, Matt. Okay. Here. Wonderful. All right. We'll get underway then. And thanks, everybody, who's joining. We've uh, had a tremendous response to today's program, uh, and we do hope you'll uh, listen up now and uh, keep in mind some of the questions and comments during the second half hour. So, Marty, I'm going to – Dr. Martin Dorfler, and I'm going to refer to you henceforth as Marty. I'm going to start with you, and the question is, why is sepsis such a big and complicated and serious problem? And that's not just in the U.S., but globally. 
remind us, I guess, of the scope and scale of what we're dealing with and the nature uh, of, of this challenge for improvers. Thanks. So uh, we can start off with the fact that it, infection remains a major problem in the U.S. and the world, and in particular in developed countries. And I think that's part of the reason why this is such a big problem, particularly in developing countries, which we don't necessarily pay close attention to in the developed world. That said, sepsis in particular is a problem resulting from the body's attempt to eradicate significant bacterial or fungal infections. The, the body's inflammatory mechanisms, which originated as a, as, a, as a tool to destroy bacteria, in essence, when that attempt becomes very, very aggressive, can hurt our own internal organs. And in that any patient with a significant bacterial fungal infection can have their inflammatory response be very aggressive and end up harming their internal organs, anybody with a significant infection is at risk for this syndrome. Um, and it is very hard to detect sometimes the transition from pneumonia, if you will, as an example, to pneumonia with an inflammatory response that is serious enough that it is starting to injure the kidneys or the coagulation mechanism or other elements of the body's normal function. Um, and in many ways, a significant sepsis episode is not much different in terms of the degree of injury that it can cause than being hit by a, a car, for instance. We just don't see it. It's all silent. It's hidden. Your kidneys don't feel pain when they're being damaged. Your lungs don't feel pain when they're being damaged until it's actually quite advanced, at which point now we're trying to recover from an injury that's been ongoing for hours to days with all of the damage that that might have caused. Mm. Wow. Okay. So um, <laughs> I guess uh, uh, being hit by a car is, is a pretty uh, a vivid or uh, in interesting metaphor for this, uh, as well as the actual reality of sepsis. So let's get right into it, even as I'm sure we'll refer back to the scope of the problem. So what are we finding out or what have we been discovering are the best practices, uh, almost like the bottom line, the musts that have to uh, go on with this and, um, and maybe put that in the context context of what North Shore Long Island Jewish has been figuring out. So probably the biggest thing is to have a process for early recognition. Uh, if I go back a number of, and I have to honestly say decades, to when I trained, sepsis was an intensive care unit problem. It was really shock. Uh, you had to have a, uh, a presence of bacteria in the blood to make the diagnosis. And over the years, we've learned that it's not bacteria in the blood, but as I said before, the body's attempt to defend itself against an infection anywhere that is causing the damage. So we need to be very vigilant about looking for signs, symptoms of, of systemic inflammatory response. And there is something referred to as SIRS, systemic inflammatory response syndrome, in patients who have sepsis or have infection. So that's the first step of this, to be vigilant for patients with infection who have tipped over to now having a systemic response. Once we detect that systemic response, and not that early aggressive antibiotics aren't important in many infections, but now the data is quite unequivocal that early aggressive antibiotics have an important impact on mortality from this condition. And so every hour that it takes in delay to getting appropriate antibiotics into a patient it impacts the, the mortality of, of that population. So timely aggressive antibiotics is probably the number one thing that we want to do. Um, as part of surviving sepsis campaign, which has to get credit for bringing a lot of attention to this, you know that, that there are a series of steps that are part of this early uh, process. We want to get blood cultures before those antibiotics, if possible, without delaying the antibiotics so that we can find the actual organism if it is in the bloodstream and eventually tailor our antibiotics to it. We want to send off the tests that identify organ dysfunction. Sepsis without organ dysfunction has a far lower mortality than sepsis with organ dysfunction, which is referred to as severe sepsis. So we want to do those tests in a timely manner as well. And then if we have any evidence of organ dysfunction and we've met the definition of severe sepsis, we need to give early aggressive fluids because those patients have both vasodilated, their blood vessels have expanded in their space, 
which results in an increased need for volume to fill that up, and the injury that's occurring to tissue results in leakage from the blood vessels into the tissues and further loss of volume. So patients who have reached the stage of severe sepsis are all volume depleted. Even people with heart failure, with lung problems, with kidney failure, if they hit the point of severe sepsis, they need volume, they need it now. And those are probably the first things that we have to do. And those are actually included in the early resuscitation bundle uh, that's been put forth by surviving sepsis, that's been amplified by the IHI. And a lot of our work here has really focused on specifically that early resuscitation bundle. Okay, thank you. That's a, a great way to kind of kick this off. And so we've got that picture now of uh, basics and uh, staging and processes that need to kick in. So let, thanks, Marty. Uh, let me now turn to uh, Dr. D'Angelo. John, it's my understanding, and I uh, thank Andrea for you know uh, drawing my attention to this, that one of the unique things that's been going on at North Shore Long Island Jewish in terms of getting things activated is a focus on the emergency department. Um, Andrea explained to me that much of the work maybe uh, up until recently had really focused more exclusively on the intensive care unit. So, John, maybe you could kind of take us to the emergency department and why that's been such an important uh, locus for uh, focus on this work and uh, what what have you been working on and, and uh, how has the progress been? Sure, thanks. Um, well, Marty did a, you know, as Marty just described, um, this is a, a spectrum of disease. And uh, traditionally, when, when folks talked of sepsis, they were referring to that patient with severe sepsis or shock that was in the ICU. So, so rather than folks, so in the sepsis arena, um, what we're trying to do at North Shore is say, we want to focus on the entire spectrum, so not just the people that are already in trouble on the extreme end of the spectrum, but we want to be able to identify patients anywhere within the sepsis, severe sepsis, or shock spectrum as early in the process as possible so we can begin intervention as early as possible, um, especially given recent evidence that Marty alluded to with uh, the relationship between early aggressive antibiotics and mortality. Um, so the reality is then um, most of that identification and most of that initial intervention is going to occur in our emergency departments. Um, the need to um, formalize our approach to make uh, folks think of sepsis as an emergency as we do other time-sensitive um, interventions um, we thought was critical. Um, it's much more challenging than doing so in a matter that you would, let's say, for uh, delivering thrombolytics for an acute MI or dealing with acute stroke, um, because not that those things aren't challenging, but typically there's a very narrow uh, symptom, signs and symptoms that we're looking for in those cases. There's usually a single test. We'll use the, the heart attack scenario, a point-of-care test, an EKG, and they meet criteria they don't, and then there's a single definitive intervention. Um, in, in the case of sepsis, especially as we look at the whole spectrum, there's many ways people can um, indicate that they are in that early inflammatory stage that Marty uh, alluded to, mm -hmm. and the criteria that would um, indicate that folks are crossing that threshold into severe sepsis or shock are not always apparent and sometimes dependent on studies that may take some time to come back. Um, so we, we basically felt a very regimented but real to the true workflow in the emergency department um, uh, algorithm and treatment guidelines was uh, critical to our success, and that's where our focus has been to date. And has that, have you been able to uh, put this into place across your entire system at all the hospitals? Yes. Yeah, so we started um, uh, back in 2009. Um, engaging uh, folks from every hospital in our health system, um, a multidisciplinary uh, approach, folks from the ICU, inpatient units, emergency departments, nursing, physician leadership. Um, and um, after some time and, 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 diff and, and back and forth uh, discussions regarding um, some of the more uh, critical care-oriented interventions, um, 
the group kind of refocused on, as I said, early identification and and getting back to the basics, the foundational elements, early identification, early antibiotics, early fluid resuscitation when indicated. Um, and uh, the at that point, the focus turned more to the emergency department, and every emergency department in our health system became became engaged. We were at the table disturbed, this, determining what our metrics should be, what realistic goals would be, um, and and creating an algorithm that was true to our environment um, so that we could pick up patients when they present at the door with signs and symptoms of severe sepsis or shock, but that we also can stay in tune to and identify patients who may not present meeting criteria, but then have some subtle changes throughout their ED course that might indicate that we need to raise our level of suspicion or, or our interventional uh, direction. And, um, and having an algorithm that really marches down each possible scenario that we may face has been, has been crucial, and that has rolled out through all of our emergency departments. Thanks a lot. Okay, before I let you go, um, I at least want to bring up sure. onto the screen, um, and I mean, you're not going, going, but before we uh, t- turn to, to some others, uh, I'm going to have John um, put up here on the screen uh, some some uh, depiction here of uh, what's been going on with reduction in mortality, and I'll start with this one, and I I realize we don't have time to kind of go into it in great detail. I want to uh, remind everybody who's uh, logged in uh, that you can download these slides when you log off the program to get today. And if you're only joining by phone, you can request the slides from info at IHI.org. But we have uh, these things, which are obviously a reflection of the algorithms and the things that you've been working on. So you want to just talk with us uh, even maybe sort of generally about the results that you've gotten? Sure. Um, so the graph you have, the, the chart you have up now is a control chart that uh, actually Marty had, had put together. And um, uh, when we analyzed the data and we looked at trends and, and the points at which you could reset our, our median for our control chart, because we met uh, criteria that, that indicated that there was a definitive change um, uh, that was sustainable. Um, when we went back and looked at that data, we actually found that there was good correlation between um, the pre-Nostro IJ task force um, uh, time period um, and, and, a, and, a, and a reduction almost immediately once we started to just have the conversations and get out our original uh, guidelines um, and started to raise awareness and start the educational process. Mm-hmm. Um, we still hadn't gotten to where we wanted to be, and during the time for where you see sepsis task force guidelines were issued and the early focus on identification in the, in the emergency department, um, we continued to work, but the the um, the the effort seemed to need another another push in the right direction. Um, right around that time when we started our partnership with the IHI mm-hmm. um, and utilizing that relationship forming teams at every hospital, multidisciplinary teams that would uh, perform the work of the of the collaborative, and starting to kind of couple the IHI's improvement science knowledge, um, as well as redefine our focus in the emergency department, we started to see dramatic changes. And that's what you see is that second uh, phase where the overall uh, mortality rate drops significantly again. Okay. Uh, so we still feel we have more work to do, but but we're happy with this progress. Okay. And uh, I'm just going to flash up the other two. I'm just to remind everybody, I think what I'll do is I'll move on to Andrea for the moment. We can always go back to these, but these are some of the things that are being tracked uh, as uh, part of uh, the work uh, that obviously is, um, and one would hope, (laughs) certainly um, contributing to the reduction in sepsis-related mortality. So thanks, John. We'll we'll come back to you. All right, Andrea Capsinol, as I said, is here with me in the studio. And before I turn to Darlene, who's going to tell us a little bit about migrating away from or out from the emergency department, I wanted Andrea's reflections on the work uh, and what's been going on and sort of with her improvement hat on uh, maybe what's been interesting or important to to actually begin to, to see some of this progress. 
Well, it's been um, really impressive to see because the folks at North Shore, when we started working with them, were already very capable improvers. And um, and two things have uh, gone into our work together that have um, that ma- it makes sense that they're getting very good traction now. Um, the first is that uh, the work in the ED is essentially a reliability problem, um, doing the things reliably that they know need to be done. Um, and they've done a great job of attacking the reliability problem with frontline testing, with trying things um, to be reliable, looking at the data and saying, well, we're not there yet, we need to get to everybody, and testing something again. And they've gotten better and better in the hospitals, some really quite superb, others just good, at learning how to use testing to get their way from we do this 20% of the time to we do this 80% of the time, and they're still working on it. The second thing is their superb use of measurement. They have a very good measurement system that allows them to track and aggregate data, and then they can get the big picture like you saw in the graph there. But the other thing that they've done is add some measurement right there at the front line concurrently. We tried something. On Thursday, did we get it right all day Thursday? If we didn't get it right all day Thursday, we have the data to say, oh, we missed it. Let's go back right now and figure out what we need to do so that Friday's better and next Monday's even better. And they've been very good at using those methods. All right. That's terrific. Well, that gives also yeah a sense of so very real time mm-hmm. and, and able to make some adjustments um, yep. based on that. That's terrific. Um, all right. Let me, again, uh, we're here, we'll hear from everyone again, but let me uh, keep things moving. Uh, Darlene, uh, let me turn to you. Uh, it's my understanding that you've played a very significant role in taking some of this learning and reliability, as Andrea has described, uh, from the ED and seeing how it can migrate outward uh, with some of the unique uh, circumstances on in other parts of the hospital. So I invite you to uh, tell us what what some of that has looked like. Welcome again. Thank you. um, Just as Dr. D'Angelo had stated, you need to be true to your environment. And although we were looking at it from the ED perspective for a while and we're trying to change the workflow that way for the emergency room, when you look to the floors, um, the environment is very different. So in efforts to make um, true changes, we did bring on a lot of people who work in the inpatient. So you would... Uh, require your hospitalists and residents and the nurses and the pharmacy, as well as maybe phlebotomy and some adjacent ancillary staff, because things are done a little bit differently on the floors than they are in the emergency room. Um, one of the, the large efforts that we did across the healthcare system was turn towards um, the early warning scores for MUSE, um, which is really just a deterioration or a warning system that alerts caretakers that the patient's going in the wrong direction. And um, of recent, many institutions within the healthcare system are now doing sepsis screening um, at various points of the deterioration scale, which nurses are great screeners, so they're able to pick up on subtle signs and trend information to alert the physician, and then the physician sees the patient. So early recognitions being um, kind of accomplished in that mannerism because, again, we want to do early recognition, um, quick antibiotics, and appropriate fluid when necessary as quickly as possible. So um, MUSE was something that I think helped us get a handle when we first turned to the inpatient unit. Um, We've also were made aware through IHI's efforts of other things being done across the country, Um, situational awareness, one of them, um, which is really just a cross-monitoring and a situational awareness not only for your unit but within a hospital so that safety officers such as hospitalists and residents on the off-shift or whomever the the, uh, institution chooses to use as a safety officer can be alerted of people who maybe our watchers or somebody who potentially had some sepsis in the ED was um, fixed due to early intervention, given a lot of fluid, looked a little bit better, and then could possibly deteriorate again while they're on the floor. Um, The other caveat area where we're looking for is handoff. When the emergency room hands off to the inpatient, um, and we have a team of people presently working on various PDSA cycles to assess how we could improve that, Um, one being through the use of order sets, um, report tools, um, so we're looking into that. So it's it's an adventure, and I think that the staff being able to test changes, um, as Andrea Clappin had said, kind of moves this work forward more quickly. Mm-hmm. Okay. 
Well, uh, Darlene, um, kind of, uh, I hope to kind of come back and to you again also and sort of maybe uh, pull out a, a little bit more from what you're saying, but perhaps we'll let me go to Diane Jacobson, who I guess is uh, really a keen observer of a lot of this and certainly has a lot of experience uh, looking at what this uh, tends to, um, h- how this all plays out on the front line. So, Dar- excuse me, Diane, talk about what the front line staff, um, you know, are are doing here to kind of get engaged. What are the critical components uh, to really carry out what what Darlene's just described? Thanks, Madge. Actually, what we've observed and experienced with our work across the North Shore Long Island Jewish Hospitals was really made real this morning on our all collaborative call with the hospitals. We've had a strong emphasis throughout the collaborative about the importance of really engaging the frontline team as the experts who know where there are delays, who can identify opportunities to streamline and really understand the care process. They're on the front line caring for patients in a busy emergency department and really live this process on a day-to-day basis. The important interventions that John and Marty and others have commented on the importance of timely and appropriate antibiotics, ensuring blood cultures, lactate, fluids as appropriate. So establishing those protocols for reliable care and timely identification and treatment is absolutely critical. But then making it real occurs at the front line, and that's what really drives the work. So a key example that was raised on today's discussion which I was very excited to hear, and the timing was perfect with our call coming up. It was related to uh, a hospital working to really continue to improve timely antibiotic administration. You know, shaving off a few key minutes and thinking about what adjustments can be made to eliminate any delays in obtaining the ordered antibiotic and then making sure that it's administered to the patient as promptly as possible. One of the hospitals shared that Based on feedback that they had gotten from the front line, who were, their goal was obviously to get the antibiotic to the patient as quickly as possible, they identified an opportunity in that having additional antibiotics available to them in the emergency department, eliminating the need to request and obtain the antibiotic from the pharmacy would help expedite things. Mm in waiting for the pharmacy it added some time so identifying and reviewing what are the most frequently ordered antibiotics and then having them available within the emergency department cut some important minutes off the time from the order to actually administering it to the patient wow okay well that's really so that's hot off the press <laughs> in terms yeah, of it, it, a realization of that. Okay. And that's an opportunity for, I guess, one hospital is sharing that in a collaborative call, and then the other organizations can also look at that um, as as a potential improvement across the board. Okay. Well, um, so I want to thank everybody for kind of setting the table here. I think before I open it up for Q&A, Marty, let me just go back to you for a moment, and just so we sort of put it all out on the table, Maybe this will come out in questions as well. What would you say are, as you do this work, and you're obviously trying to be a very well-oiled engine on this, which seems it's so critical because every second counts, where are some of uh, the weak links as you kind of look at it from 30,000 feet in terms of um, what you've been able to accomplish thus far? Well, there are a number of places for weak links. On a process basis, I want to pull on two things that John and, and, and uh, Andrea touched on, um, which is having metrics that the staff involved believe in and buy into. Um, surviving sepsis, with all credit to this campaign, um, based upon the data that's out there, uses triage time as time zero for the emergency department, which is appropriate when patients come in really sick. And you heard John talk about how we have a sometimes moving clock on this. 
and working with the emergency physicians on having a metric based upon the recognition of sepsis for some of our process measures really broke down some significant barriers and the physicians feeling like we were working with them to help them improve as opposed to working against them finding things that they failed on that they couldn't necessarily change. So I think that that is an important piece. Um, fluids I'm going to touch on is really probably the, the one of the really hard things that we're working on now. There are many, many steps to it. When do you get them started? How fast do they run? Trying to get the 30 ml per kilo. Is it 30 ml per kilo real weight or ideal body weight? If it's ideal body weight, we make sure we have a height on everybody. There's multiple steps involved in getting something like that right. And so part of what we've done is to come up with some of our own internal pieces. Like, let's not work on getting 30 ml per kilo in, in every patient in three hours of our first step. Let's work on getting fluid started in everybody within 30 minutes. It's an easier thing to, 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 to work on and fix, not necessarily part of your global uh, goal that you want to get to, but it stepwise gets you there. And so the, the, the two big, you know, from 30,000 feet, clinical issues. There's a competition between early aggressive antibiotics and appropriate antibiotic stewardship. And we've engaged our infectious disease folks in that discussion with us, and they support us in being early and aggressive and then tailoring later. And then the fluid piece, you know, trauma surgeons are very comfortable dumping large amounts of fluid into patients in shock. Internal medicine physicians are very uncomfortable dumping large amounts of fluids into anybody because a lot of the patients have pulmonary and other problems or have existing heart failure. And so there's a tremendous reluctance to, to really be aggressive with the fluids. And probably from a clinical standpoint, that is the hardest thing to get past is getting people, as soon as they recognize what's going on, to give those fluids and recognize that the risk of giving them is actually significantly less than the risk of not getting them. Okay. That's very, very helpful, Marty. And maybe there will be folks uh, on the program today who can chat in uh, any experiences they've had around those issues. Um, so I'm glad that you laid those out. Um, all right. I want to just go back to Diane Jacobson for one more flash here. Um, I, she reminds me there was uh, just one or two more things she wanted to say. Diane, go Go ahead. Thanks so much, Madge. You had also um, asked about some of the, the challenges in maintaining the work and m- maintaining the goal, the gains that have been made and maintaining the focus is really key. And Darlene also referenced the, the communication that is critical in handing off the care as the patient transitions from the emergency department to the inpatient floor or to the intensive care unit. And I really wanted to acknowledge the, the system of 11 hospitals at North Shore as they've demonstrated the impact of really focusing on joint established protocols and expediting the care of patients in really driving down sepsis mortality. And comment on another example that I'd reference is the work at Kaiser Northern California, which is a system of 21 medical centers, and they similarly implemented an initiative on early detection and treatment using the um, sepsis treatment bundles and have had substantially uh, decreased rates of mortality and increasing rates of identification of patients. So the, the work across the system with individual hospitals both sharing the same protocols and also sharing the learnings and challenges is really powerful. Thanks, Diane. Okay, very, very good. All right, so let's uh, open things up, although I see the chat has started. John, anything uh, worth reminding people of in terms of the chat? Uh, yeah, just a reminder. Make sure that all uh, you send to all participants, and that way everyone here in the studio and all our guests uh, um, down at North Shore Long Island Jewish can um, also see, and everybody in the chat can see as well. Thank you very much. Okay, I'm going to uh, try and get to as many of these as possible with the help of my guests who might also pull some things out, I'll try and group some things. All right, a couple of questions uh, have come about. How do you feel the sepsis updates, and that's capitalized, are about to, that are about to come out, will affect the treatment protocols? And somebody needs to make sure we all understand what that means around sepsis. Okay, and Andrea is saying Marty is a good person to address that. All right, Marty. 
Thank you. Um, so a couple of things. They are out. Uh, they've been published now cons- uh, coincident with the uh, current critical care medicine uh, uh, meetings that are going on. Um, the modifications in the new surviving sepsis campaign updates are relatively modest to what was out before. And if if you've been tracking the literature, many of them uh, should be things you've already considered. So, for instance, they've moved from a recommendation of between 20 and 30 ml per kilo of fluids to now flatly recommending the initial resuscitation be at 30. So that's relatively soft. We actually made that change about a year and a half ago. Um, they've moved from having tight glucose control to now keeping the sugars under 180. And that's consistent with the NICE sugar trial that was published last year already. And so if you're tracking that literature, there's really nothing there that is a major change. Uh, it's really some tightening up and, and some simplification in many ways. The only place where there's a, a real change in the recommendation of something new is that now there's a consideration for the use of albumin in certain circumstances, which for the moment, we're not going to change our algorithm around that. We're not going to tell anybody to not do it, but uh, I personally, uh, from my vantage point, and we didn't talk about the fact I'm actually a critical care specialist, do not think that that as a as it's actually not a recommendation, it's, it's there as to consider is something that has strong enough evidence to it that we're going to actually change that. So I don't think that the new guidelines do anything but streamline somewhat and tighten up what was already there. And as Andrea said in uh, her piece, the big issue here is to become highly reliable around doing what we're already doing in the antibiotics, the blood cultures, the lactate, early aggressive fluids, whether it be 20 mLs or 30 mLs. That's not changed, and if we're doing it at 50% and we move it to 85% or 90%, we're going to get a big bang for that. The guidelines are not impacting what that is. Okay, thank you very much. All right, that's very helpful. Question, uh, I think, uh, for uh, Dr. D'Angelo, if you could describe a little bit about um, your data sources for outcomes and processes. Are you doing chart review, um, sort of how you're kind of gathering up uh, the information that you need to track um, your trends? Sure. So, uh, yeah, this has been a a process and evolution since we began the effort couple of years back. So we're, we are um, moving more and more towards uh, concurrent review. Um, however, most of the review um, to date has been uh, at the chart level. Um, the, we've not been relying on Sparks data or final you know, coding uh, to uh, identify charts to be pulled. So we've tried to be creative in, um, it, uh, just for example, so we... Um, We've really um, attempted to educate all the ED providers um, to include lactate in in their ordering. If they if they meet if they have a patient that they feel um, uh, if they meet our uh, what we call our super service criteria, which we can get into, but if they meet our criteria for the uh, for the more aggressive ED bundle of care, um, lactate should be included. Folks with infection and service criteria which often um, makes ED folks cringe a little bit because that's a very broad bucket. If the clinician sees the patient and decides that they're sick enough to require labs or an IV or a workup, so it's not that pharyngitis that happens to have a pulse of 92, it's a significant infection that you're going to work up, we've really drilled uh, to get people to include lactate in that initial uh, workup. So provided that we're reliably uh, obtaining lactates on anybody with an infection that's having blood drawn, um, we also use reports from our lab or just the indicate a lactate being drawn as indication for our abstractors to go review that chart um, to see if they meet our criteria, you know, if they meet sepsis criteria and should be included in the in the data abstraction. Um, so it's it's been happening during the hospitalization. We're trying to get more down to time of care or within 24 hours of care. Um, and uh, 
that I think that answers the question. Okay, thanks, John. I'm going to hold you for a moment for another uh, question that I think goes to you. Somebody is saying here we've implemented uh, the sepsis campaign and saw an improvement initially, but now we need to analyze and adjust. Do you suggest we head over to the emergency department? Uh, as And there's a, a related question, are you having triage nurses draw lactate if they are suspecting sepsis, which is a separate but related question. So let's let's start with that first one. An interesting question of folks who have been working on in, in this area. Uh, Kathy, the questioner doesn't exactly say where they've been working on it in the rest of the hospital, but any thoughts about um, whether it's it probably makes sense to um, focus on the emergency department? Well, I, I think it makes a lot of sense to focus on the emergency department. Um, and it depends on your facility, but I can tell you in all of our facilities, about 70% uh, of the inpatient uh, uh, patients uh, come through our emergency department. So, um, so a large part of the uh, encounter um, starts in the emergency department. Um, as uh, we've said earlier, early the earlier the intervention, the better. Um, and um, it's and, and it's not that the ED folks currently in your facilities don't know. Um, what uh, early goal-directed therapy is and what the proper uh, management should be. Um, as Diane alluded to, there's, um, there's just not uh, been, in my experience, you need basically to, to organize your efforts so that the care is being delivered reliably and, and the obstacles that the frontline staff will, would encounter in doing so are addressed, which is why... The, they need to be at the table at at uh, at, at the very beginning. Um, so the, the the real key is getting the if you're going to go do this in the emergency department that you have the emergency department people at the table um, and that you uh, come up with not only what you would like to happen you allow them the flexibility to um, figure out the best way to implement it in their environment. Okay, thanks a lot. And that very uh, related, it was a, a, a kind of a tagged-on question, are you having triage nurses draw lactate if they are suspecting sepsis? Uh, we do not. Um, and uh, for, for various reasons, but um, the most obvious is in New York State, the New York State Nursing uh, Board does not allow for uh, what folks would refer to as advanced triage protocols or ah. nurse-driven protocols. Um, so it requires a, 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 a. So it's not. It's not. It wouldn't. It wouldn't fly in New York. Um, okay. As is. So that's one of the reasons we're not doing it. Yeah. Okay. Thank you very much, Darlene. Let me bring you in. I see. A, uh, and if you're looking at the chat and you see any other questions you'd like to pick up on, but a couple of uh, strike me. One is a uh, somebody is asking, do you utilize a sepsis response team or rapid response team in responding to patients uh, with possible sepsis. And uh, somebody also was asking if there's one important thing you might want to convey to nursing students uh, about this. But um, since uh, we were talking with you about migrating away from the emergency areas onto the floors where rapid response teams have really uh, grown up, um, could you talk about that? Sure. Um we're presently using a MU score of three where the nurses do a sepsis screen. If it rules in positive, then the licensed independent practitioner is brought to the, to the bedside, and they assess it and then engage in the bundle process as quickly as possible. Um, a MU score of five will give you an automatic rapid response. The rapid response um, team has, has a sheet that they fill out, which we've also put the sepsis screening tool, and the bundles are attached to that. So if at the rapid response, you look to see if the patient has Sears criteria, have they, were they admitted with a possible infection or have a possible infection now. Then you draw the appropriate labs, have the physician at the, at, as part of the rapid response team or expedite the antibiotics and start the boluses at the time of the rapid response. There's actually two ways of um, trying to pick that up. One, it's incorporated into RRT, and the nurses do a screening off the deterioration scores, which are also associated with increased monitoring um, from the MU score. So we're kind of trying to do it in two two ways because recognition um, is kind of difficult even though we have a diagnosis it may have been you know may not be related that somebody progresses to while they're on the floor okay thank you very much and i thought i'm sorry go ahead yes jump on and then i'll go back to darlene around the nursing student yeah go ahead uh, this is john in response in the question was asking about sepsis uh teams or 
Um, what we even in, what we've implemented pretty uniformly across all REDs, although they all came to this point independently, was a code sepsis um, uh, type of philosophy, whether they call it sepsis alert or code sepsis, to kind of uh, kind of mobilize the the team in the ED to the bedside when people met certain criteria, um, almost like a huddle at the bedside, and everybody and, and kind of expediting whatever needed to be done. With that being said, this is a good example of. Uh, we felt it was very important to kind of guide what should happen, what we'd like to happen in the care, but not necessarily dictate how or who. So a sepsis team at a large tertiary may involve someone coming down from a designated unit or, or, or service, where in the community hospitals where maybe you have single coverage in the emergency department after hours and potentially a family practice resident in the building, that that the resources may be different and who, who would respond may be different. So so it was really important when we were looking at multiple facilities to really focus on what we were hoping to accomplish and let the facilities determine the best mechanism, and that included who would be responsible to do what. Okay, thanks. Also want to note, uh, John, of course, was very nice to put his email uh, address up here for uh, getting a hold of the algorithms. John, if you want to uh, forward that to us, we'll attach these to a resource document uh, that we uh, put up with the archive uh, edition of uh, WHI tomorrow that may save your inbox a bit. Uh, but uh, Thank you. I appreciate <laughs> But uh, yes, the answer to the question about whether North Shore could shave, uh, excuse me, share that is is a yes. Uh, there are several questions uh, really getting in, into the details here about um, one is around false positives, uh, sort of making sure that your your screens and the tests you're using uh, sort of pull out the really really serious uh, things. I don't know if uh, either John or Marty, if you've had a chance to sort of see some of those questions, but um, if either one of you um, might want a response, because that's all part of that early uh, recognition and forever, I guess, refining, making sure you really, um, you know, you have the best tools available. Sorry, that I didn't even pose that as a question. Uh, somebody has said, yeah. what tool do you use for early identification in the ED? Uh, okay. Yeah, sorry about that. I was so, much too uh, okay. verbose there. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> so um, the, the, the algorithm that we put together, which I'll give to match the post, um, basically has two arms of the pathway. So... So the, the, the tool or the, or the uh, you know, SERS criteria with a significant infection is our pretty much our, um, our springboard for the less severe arm, the less obvious, uh, the less sick patient. But what we created, especially when we started talking about T0s, which I'm seeing a lot of people ask questions about, when we really wanted to discuss what a legitimate start time or T0 would be, um, the, the real... Um, uh, top, the topic that took a lot of our, our focus was um, we, we wanted to be held accountable in the emergency department to rapid and timely care uh, when indicated. However, um, uh, there's a big difference between a patient who arrives in shock versus, again, a patient who arrives with a fever of 101 and a pulse of 92 but, is, but looks perfectly fine and stable. And, um, and then they later deteriorate. Um, so we created what we called super SERS criteria, which were basically a little bit more uh, a narrow uh, uh, grouping of uh, vital signs which should cause alarm. And um, in light of those vital sign criteria, um, coupled with the suspicion of an infection, um, if that happened to be present at triage, that's the group we determined would be uh, legitimate to tie us to triage time as our T0, and in that group we have a very regimented uh, uh, pathway that we're hoping that will be followed. Um, and then we also create a bridge between the two pathways, so if someone comes in and they don't meet our severe criteria, and then they later develop those criteria, or they later have a lab come back that surprises everybody despite how good they look, they meet some uh, uh, definition for end-organ dysfunction, uh, and so on, we can we can trigger that patient into that more severe arm of our pathway. But it all starts with our uh, vital sign uh, uh, okay. uh, tools that we're using um, right. and groupings to kind of 
guide the staff. Right. Well, thanks, John. That's a, a good description, and uh, uh, thanks for all your patience, everyone. As you know, WIHI uh, kind of doesn't necessarily get into all these details in a sort of how-to program, but we are highlighting a lot of things that we hope you'll pursue. And again, John uh, and North Shore have very generously offered to share that algorithm, and we'll make sure to post that with our resources. Um, I want to swing back again to Darlene uh, when we were somebody asked uh, if you could give uh, some particular advice to nursing students kind of coming into their jobs and uh, kind of having some awareness about sepsis prevention, what, what thoughts you might have on that? I think that um, assessment skills when you first graduate um, need to be honed in on and kind of cultivated as you're going. So if they pay particular attention to vital sign or abnormalities and how they're trending and to really assess and, and inquire with the patient if possible if there's a history of infection, if there's a source. Um, you know, oftentimes patients may or it, caregivers may not know that the patient has a decubiti, um, or so they have to really use assessment skills head to toe and track and trend a pattern for vital signs. Um, once they've done that, then they can maybe um, alert uh, somebody who is more, has more experience to go through the bone elements and see how they could accomplish them. But it's really um, just looking at the patients, doing you know frequent vital sign monitoring, and trying to hone in their assessment skills. So if they can trend the vital sign, why is the heart rate going up? Why is the blood pressure going down? Um, respiratory rate is one of the first indicators for um, you know for sepsis. I think it's it's something that everybody looks at. But if they really honed in on doing a full minute seeing if it's changed, whether it's going up or down, I think would would help them in the beginning stages when they first graduate. Okay. Thanks a lot, Darlene. Diane, I also... Let me echo... Oh, go ahead. Who's that? Let me just echo one thing on Darlene's comment. I want to echo and amplify the respiratory rate. Thanks. It's very common to see every patient on a floor have a respiratory rate of 16 or 18 or something like that, and a normal respiratory rate is actually much lower than that. And an accurate respiratory rate and a change between what it was and what it is now that's higher in particular is often the first clue that something serious is going on. And your question was started with with, uh, nurses beginning their career. I want to really amplify Darlene's attention to the respiratory rate as something that is grossly underappreciated as an indicator of patients getting into trouble. Okay. Thank you very much, Marty. I appreciate it. Diane, I might have left you in in, in kind of mid-thought at some point. Is there anything you wanted to chime in about? Um, Well, not explicitly. I would um, (laughs) echo the remarks that John had made, and I think it can't be overemphasized, the power of concurrent data, really understanding with looking at a very small subset of patients, we have encouraged and the North Shore uh, Long Island Jewish Hospitals have really adopted the approach of let's look at the last five patients and see how we did. So the concurrent review as well as the broader database that provides perspective over time the engine for improvement being looking in real time at the patients as they're being cared for. Okay. Thank you very much. Well, if I could just echo over that. Go ahead. One thing that came when we first started, especially with IHI and looking at things concurrently, um, it's very, we were amazed to actually see maybe in some areas we weren't doing what we thought we were doing. Um, so if you're looking at it concurrently, you can actually see the processes that an institution maybe thinks that they are performing in a certain way, and then when you do concurrent review and are actually looking at how the processes are being done, you may realize it's a little bit different than what you think you're doing, mm, very which, is, um, which yeah. adds for improvement quickly. Right, and can certainly cover uh, a lot of areas. And I think that's, uh, thanks, Darlene, that's a good segue to something I wanted to ask Andrea, kind of as you think about um, what all this work uh, on sepsis at places like North Shore, Long Island Jewish, Kaiser Permanente, and others, what do you think it's kind of teaching us about uh, improvement work across uh, some of these infection-related and other kind of um, early intervention? I don't mean it to be a surprise uh, question to you, but you you have that that view in a way, and as always, we're always trying to see what are we learning from this very focused work uh, that we can apply uh, elsewhere. 
Well, I think we're relearning something that we all suspect, and it's just very vivid as you watch teams try and do this, that um, we've gotten pretty good at the easy stuff already. Um, Central line infections, ventilator-associated pneumonia, no one used to think they were easy, but they were compared to some of the challenges we're facing now. What we're learning in sepsis is that the level of coordination when there's uncertainty about what's going on and the requirements to communicate across boundaries and work really as a team and be very focused um, is... It's not new to healthcare, but at this level, it is new, and that's what the new challenge is. Mm-hmm. And let me ask you one more question, which is kind of the public awareness piece of this, patients and families. Um, I know that uh, when I have mentioned sepsis or have heard about sepsis uh, affecting any families that I know, it has scared uh, the Jesus out of people. I mean, it's a lot of folks had no idea of the magnitude of that, how serious that could be also sort of what to look out for themselves if they're a family member, uh, except something may not seem right. So, um, I, I, North Shore, I, I of course uh, want your input on this as well. But um, how important is that? Is that in in this uh, improvement journey right here? Well. Um there's something very cryptic about sepsis. People don't seem that sick, and then they're very sick, and then something terrible, really terrible happens. And I guess the awareness among families is an awareness that they should have anyway, which is if something doesn't look right to them, they should do something or say something, whether the patient's in the hospital, whether the patient's at home, whether the advice that the doctor gave just doesn't make sense. Uh, I think that awareness is good. It could, you know, might seem like they're annoying the clinicians, but they're doing a service, and it's better to do that than to um, ignore things that worry them and just say, oh, it's probably okay. All right. Very good. Thanks, Andrea. All right, John, um, I'm going to just give you a, a, a very quick moment here with a, a reminder about an upcoming uh, event at IHI, and then we'll just have some last remarks. Stick, a, a, stick with us, everybody. A quick reminder. Of course, yeah, the work to reduce death from sepsis is a great example of how agile and innovative teams can make a real difference in patient safety. But improvement teams need, improvement teams need leadership, and the best place to learn is IHI's Patient Safety Executive Development Program. Program, an intensive seven-day program designed to prepare you to lead strong and effective patient safety programs. Now in its 15th offering, the program's curriculum is continually refined to incorporate the most up-to-date lessons learned and growing understanding of safety, as well as the changing needs of participants as identified by program, program alums. The concepts taught in this program are a result of experience IHI has gained through years of guiding organizations in their patient safety improvement efforts. This year's PSO will take place here at IHI in Cambridge. From March 7th to March 13th, we promise if you come, it won't be this cold. And for more information, stop by IHI.org backslash patient safety. All right. Thank you very much, John. All right. I want to go around the horn, and we will uh, we are at the top of the hour. And if you've got to run, you got to run. But uh, those of you who can just hang in for just another a minute or two, let me start with Marty and go around the horn and sort of some parting words. Uh, what's next? Uh, what should we be uh, looking for? for next from you, what will be on top of mind for you? So for us, the, we are going to be focusing, as I already said, on fluids in particular in the emergency department, but we're also now moving to focus on the transition of care. We recognize that we have a lot of patients in the emergency department getting very aggressive care now and stable enough to go to the floor environment, and the transition between the emergency team and the floor team is inadequate to have those patients appropriately monitored and the attention that they need occur. So that's actually one of the big areas that we're going to be focusing on next. Thank you very much. Uh, Thanks for being part of today's program. John D'Angelo. Uh, I would just echo what Marty had just said and say that I think another uh, challenge or or the next step for us is not only um, enhancing the situational awareness and the quality of the handoff from the ED to the inpatient floor, but making sure that we have solid practices in place to monitor and quickly identify um, progression or emergence of sepsis and the patients that are stuck in between. So patients that are in the emergency department because of lack of inpatient capacity, um, we feel is also another opportunity um, or at least an area of risk that we need to address. 
Okay. Thank you again, uh, Dr. D'Angelo, for being with us today. Darlene, uh, kind of what, what, what's, what's on your to-do list? <laughs> um, just to echo what Dr. Doffler and Dr. D'Angelo said, but I think really focusing on um, having many members of an organization be able to perform the PDSA cycles and maybe do some actual real-time testing with their own staff members. Um, when a lot of people can do that, the work moves very quickly. And uh, we've been seeing evidence of that throughout the institution in very pockets where hospitalists, residents, and a group of individuals are now participating in this type of change management throughout the system working on sepsis. Okay, very, very good. All right, well, listen, I want to thank our uh, stellar guests uh, from North Shore Long Island Jewish, uh, Dr. Dorfler, Dr. D'Angelo, and Darlene Parmentier. This has just been tremendous. I'm so glad. What a feat to get on everyone's calendars. People have also been so helpful as we plan today's program. Big thank you to you. Thank you to Andrea Capsonal, Diane Jacobson, who are invaluable to me. Uh, and clearly invaluable to the work that we've been hearing about today. Uh, next up on WIHI on February 7th, we're going to be talking employ- about costs and employers and employees and what they all have to do with one another to help uh, improve quality and lower costs. And we hope you'll tune in for that. The webpage about that is now live. Don't forget, when you logged on today, uh, you gave yourself the opportunity to download the chat and any slides we use for today's discussion. Uh, all All this material will be posted by tomorrow morning along with the audio of today's program. So if you liked what you heard and you feel it would be helpful to listen to again or share with someone else, please do. You can also find it on iTunes. If there's any question whatsoever, anything lingering, please don't hesitate to call, excuse me, email info at IHI.org and they'll pass along those messages to me and John. Great group of people who helped make WIHI possible. Mike Sweeney, Jameson Case, Jesse McCall, Alan Olison, Vicki Minden, John Gothier, Jane Rossner, Val Weber, and Matt Morse, and our Northeastern co-op Nicole Wells. We have some original music that uh, gets us into the show and uh, says goodbye, and it's my privilege to host a program that's about spirited learning and improving patient care most of all. For the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, I'm Madge Kaplan. Good day, everyone.